If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the first epistle the Apostle Paul wrote. And before you think an epistle is a letter written by an apostle, it just means a letter. But it was written by the Apostle Paul. And he had been at Thessalonica about three weeks and preached the gospel and people got saved. And then he had to move on and leave one of them in charge. And his great fear is, was three weeks long enough? Will they stay on track? I mean, Thessalonica is in Greece with his pantheon of pagan gods and all those pagan temples and all those pagan prostitutes. Will they stay true to the Lord? So Paul writes them a letter commending them that when Timothy and Silas came to see him. They said they're staying true to the faith. They're persevering. They're living what you taught them. So Paul writes back a letter to encourage them. And because it's his first letter, what's really important to me is in every chapter, he focuses them on the second coming of the Lord and the promise of the rapture and the resurrection. In other words, why should we stay true? We keep our eyes on the goal. The Lord is coming for us. It could be in September this year. If not, we have another year to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to teach. The Lord said, occupy till I come. But if it is this September, are you ready? So let's talk about this because verse 13 begins with the word so. And as Daniel taught us, that word so is the word ice in Greek, E-I-S. And it has a specific meaning. It means for the purpose of. There's a reason. So let's back up to verse 12. It says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. How does one respond to God in love? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and they're not burdensome. It says, Abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you, so that, so for the purpose of, he may establish your hearts blameless. What does that Hebrew word tamim mean? That's often translated blameless. It means without spot or blemish. When you examine the lamb before you take it to be sacrificed at Passover, what do you do? You examine the lamb to make sure it's without spot or blemish. This is the way the Apostle Paul wants to present the believers is without spot or blemish. And how does one become without spot or blemish? One must repent of the sins. And walk uprightly. So he says, your heart's blameless in what word is that? Holiness. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah with all his saints. First thing I want you to do is keep a finger here. And go up to Revelation chapter 19. If you ever think the Bible is inconsistent... Take another look. 
Revelation 19 talks about the bride that Messiah is looking for. Look in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. Does it say dirty linen full of filth and yuck? No. Fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. The righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 14, 12 tells us what God means by the saints. They're the ones who want. Keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Yeshua. So carrying on with that word holiness from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, also written by the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. But notice verse 4 begins in the middle of a sentence. So let's start at the beginning of the sentence in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Yeshua the Messiah, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. What's that word separated mean? Set apart to. His whole job is to preach the gospel. Which he promised. Which who promised? God promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What does Paul mean by the phrase the Holy Scriptures? The Tanakh, the Old Testament as we would call it. How did the Old Testament promise the gospel? Where does the gospel begin in the Scriptures? In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So from the very beginning of the creation of mankind, God has been preaching the gospel. Concerning his son, Yeshua the Messiah, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of what? Holiness. What if Yeshua had walked in this world carousing with loose women and worshiping idols of gold, silver, and brawn and stealing from the... Then he wouldn't be the Messiah, would he? Did he keep God's commandments? How do you know? Because he says so, right? His spirit of holiness, it's, he, God declared him to be holy by the resurrection from the dead. If he had died a sinner, where would he be today? Still be in a grave, right? God resurrected him because he walked in a spirit of holiness. Did he keep the commandments? Let's go back to John chapter 15 to see his own words. John chapter 15, verse 10. And I've been advised, I've been going a little fast, so I will slow down now and then. <clears throat> John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So either he kept the commandments or he's a liar. He didn't just say it. He did it. He didn't just say it. By other people. 
He did it. It was observed by other people. His actions verified the words that he spoke. And that was point number two. You knew I was going there. <laughs> okay, on to Second Corinthians. Empty words have no value. They've got to be backed up by actions. You can call yourself anything you want, but your actions, your life will let people know what's really in your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 begins with therefore. What does therefore mean? Because of what has just been written, right? So what has just been written? Verse 17 begins of the chapter before. Therefore, come out from among them. Them refers to the unbelievers, the lawless, those who walk in darkness, those who follow Satan rather than God, those who are unbelievers. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Be separate, be holy, consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Do not touch or cling to that which is unclean. And I'll receive you, I'll be a father to you, and shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, do you want to be the child of God? Do you want him to be your heavenly father? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That is to be tamim, without spot or blemish. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul talks a lot about holiness. Let's go over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I grew up being taught the Apostle Paul says, Stop keeping the commandments. Just sin all you want to and God will love it. Where did Paul say that? Nowhere. Nowhere. Romans chapter 6 verse 19 says... You know how chapter 6 began. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Certainly not. In Greek, in Hebrew, don't you do it. I speak in human terms, verse 19 says, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, what does he mean? You presented, used to, past tense, before you got saved. So now, what changed? You got saved by faith. So now that you're saved by faith, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Can you have holiness without righteousness? The answer is no. Can you have lawlessness and holiness? No. no, they're incompatible. They're opposites. Same chapter, verse 22. But now having been set free from sin, that is, you've been saved by faith, and have become slaves of God or servants. It's the same word in Hebrew. It's evid, slave, servant. They're interchangeable. You have your fruit to holiness. And the end or goal, everlasting life. So holiness leads to what? Everlasting life. 
How many of you would like to have some of that everlasting life? Do you get there through lawlessness or holiness? Through holiness. Go to Zechariah chapter 14. But Wayne, that's in the Old Testament. Yep, it sure is. Zechariah chapter 14. Weren't people in the Old Testament saved by works? The answer is no. No one's ever been saved by works. But in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3, the Lord returns. It's the same as in Revelation 19.11. But that last sentence of verse 5 is eye-opening. Thus the Lord my God will come. So what is Zechariah calling Yeshua, our Messiah, who returns on the white horse in Revelation 19.11? The Lord my God and all the saints with you. Who are the saints? Revelation 14.12, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. Is there a verse in the Bible that says, keeping the commandments of God or the faith in Yeshua? There is not. It's not a multiple choice test. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. And if you don't love God, then you don't. Did I make that up or is that in the scripture somewhere? Go to John chapter 14. We'll look and see. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, Messiah's own words say, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And what you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So come judgment day, when you stand before the Lord for eternal judgment, are you going to be judged by your words or by your actions? Which will have more weight? It's both, but which has more weight? The actions. But it is both. Scripture says, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. In John 15, it says in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. In verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. We could go on and on, but we won't. We will be go back to 1 Thessalonians, but we'll look, go, turn to chapter 4. Verse 1. How many chapters are in 1 Thessalonians? Nope, there's five. But there's only five. And in chapter 4, he starts to wrap up the book. It says, finally then. Well, yeah, it goes on for another two pages. But finally then, we're wrapping up. 
brethren. Who does he call brethren? Saints. Whether they're Jew or Gentile makes no difference to Paul. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort. What's it mean to urge and exhort? Are they calmly suggesting? Or are they pushing? They're pushing. They're encouraging. We urge and exhort in the Lord Yeshua that you should abound more and more. That doesn't mean get fatter and fatter. It means grow in your love and in your understanding of scriptures. Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Look at verse 1 a little more carefully. When you see the phrase, the Lord Yeshua, does it look like the word Lord is an adjective? It is not. It is a noun. So, in the Lord who is Yeshua. It's not just an adjective. It's telling us that the Lord, which is a term used throughout the Old Testament, is Yeshua. It is our Messiah. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We'll start in verse 41. Messiah is about to be crucified and everybody gets to try and find fault in him. And the scribes and the Pharisees they really are trying to trip him up somehow so that they can say to the people, see, he's not the promised Messiah. So verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them. He turns around, he's going to ask them a question. Isn't that a very Jewish thing to do, to answer a question with a question? That's what he's going to do. Saying, Who do you th what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They don't have to hesitate to think, right? They said to him, the son of David. They know that. That's been taught from the time of Abraham forward, essentially. How does the book of Matthew begin? Here's the genealogy to show that Yeshua is the son of David. Yeah. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit, meaning in the Holy Spirit, that is through prophecy, call him Lord? How many parents call their children Lord? No, it's backwards, right? The Lord is the greater. So David is calling Messiah Yeshua Lord. Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand so I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110 verse 1, right? If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The very statement means that Messiah Yeshua came before David and is greater than David. How can he be both before David and the son of David? And their answer is, they just shut up. They don't have any idea. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare ask him anything anymore. Why? Because they're afraid he's going to ask questions they can't answer. So, is Yeshua the Lord? The answer is yes, he is. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Verse 
Luke chapter 2. I was raised with the mindset that Yeshua was born 2,000 years ago, and that was his beginning. What does the scripture say in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. Luke 2, 23. Luke chapter 2, verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Why does it say, as it's written in the law of the Lord, not in the law of Moses? Who gave the law to Moses? The Lord did. Is Yeshua the Lord? Yes. Yeshua gave the law to Moses. Wayne? Yes, ma'am? Uh, in that verse 23, um, could you go a little bit further as far as what differentiates um, the first male that opens the womb as holy to the Lord compared to any other sons who come along? Okay, go back to the book of Exodus chapter 12. At the time of the Exodus, God killed all the firstborn male children. Except for those whose parents killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Those firstborn he saved. So those firstborn that he saved from that point forward belong to the Lord. But God allows him to be redeemed. So back, go back to Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, uh, let's see, what verse should we start with? Let's start with verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Do you see how lambs in parenthesis? The Passover refers to the lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop. What does hyssop represent in prophecy? Humility. Humility. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in your basin. Look over at that door. Put blood up the right doorpost, across the lintel, and down the left doorpost. And what sign have you created? It's a Hebrew letter, hate, which stands for life. So by believing God and doing what God commanded, putting the blood upon the doorpost and lintel, the child will have life. It says, and none of you shall go to the house until the morning. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. I don't like the way that's written. The Hebrew literally says the Lord will hover over the door. That's different in my mind than passing over. He hovers over it so that the death angel cannot come in. 
Lord will, will hover over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So if you go to the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. And that's because God saved the firstborn at the Passover. So that's why the firstborn belongs to God, and God allows that child to be redeemed. And that's the significance in the book of Luke. Okay, so do they have a... They would go to the... It's not a different purpose. It's that that child belongs to God. Would you like to give the child to God or redeem it? To redeem it, you go to the temple and you pay the amount that God set aside. Because the Levites are doing in the temple what the firstborn are obligated to do for God. So since they're performing the services the firstborn would be obligated to do, what you pay to the temple when you dedicate the child is to compensate the Levites for the services they're doing on behalf of the child. So in the world we live in now, a firstborn is set aside in God's eyes? The firstborn in Israel, that's true. Okay. There's a ceremony called the Pediahabain ceremony that we do for a firstborn male child. And we symbolically redeem him back to God. Yeah, okay. Romans chapter 8. Uh oh. I have four chats out here. Let me see. Do, 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 do. And no one was able to answer him. Where is this again? Um, I'm sorry. It's not enough of a question. Oh, Rachel answered it. Matthew 22. Okay. All right. Rachel was on the ball. Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Oh, I know what the question meant now. Okay. Yeah, it was Matthew 22. Okay. But we're going to Romans chapter 8, verse 39. And verse 39 begins in the middle of the sentence. So let's start verse 38, which is the beginning of the sentence. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. What does the word Lord mean? Master. Master, the one we serve, the one whom we obey. Does that remind you of Romans 6.16? Just turn back a page or two. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, you're that one's servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What does obedience to God's commandments lead you to? Obedience to 
righteousness. So you can also, yes, some. Going back to verses uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39, it says nothing can separate us from the law of God. But can't we separate ourselves from God by, by not uh, obeying Him? And, yes, uh, the verse says nothing external can separate you. It doesn't say you can't walk away, unfortunately, because you can. But just put in your notes, but don't. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter talks about the day of the Lord, about the rapture and resurrection and the judgment to come. Like Paul, he wants us to keep in mind that we will be judged one day. Because that should help us to walk more uprightly. In 2 Peter 3, it says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But, what's that word but mean? The day of the Lord will come. So we may hope it doesn't, but it's coming anyway. If you keep your mind on the judgment that's coming, perhaps we will walk uprightly in holiness well, and be ready for it. Could it not be trying to help us to understand that although there's an, uh, he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, the day is coming yep. when it's going to be too late to make that. Yep. He wishes everyone to repent, but the day is coming when it's too late. Yeah. Um, in fact, that same chapter goes on to say in verse 14, Therefore, let's draw an application. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, knowing that judgment day is coming, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot, and blameless. There's that Tamim again. So to be found in holiness with clean garments without spot or blemish. And then Revelation 14, 13. Revelation 14, 13. It's a verse that at first glance doesn't seem to say much till you think about it. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. That's the key part of this verse. Their works follow them, meaning what? What you do will come into judgment. Will you stay firmly in your faith, clinging to our Messiah Yeshua, not letting go of the God who redeemed us? Or will you give in to the tribulations, temptations, and pressures and persecutions and try and save the flesh? 
Best recommendation, don't be in the tribulation period. Two more verses, 1 John 2, 6. When Paul admonishes us to walk in the ways of the Lord, what's that mean? 1 John 2, 6. You read in John 14 and 15 about how important it is to abide in Messiah. It says, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Messiah is our best example. How did he live? If we live as he lived, if we walk as he walked, we would do well. Last verse, Ephesians chapter 4. Also written by Paul. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Remember the verse in 1 Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians, rather, was you ought to walk and to please God, that you learn from the apostles how we should walk. So in Ephesians 4, verse 17, the apostle Paul says, when you get saved, it says in verse 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in a futility or perversement of their mind. What's it mean to walk? What's that word mean in the Bible? It's how, we live it's how you live your life. Do you continue to live the life of sin that you did before you got saved? The Bible says no. So what sets us apart from the way we used to walk? But the commandments of God. So if you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's what Paul is trying to get across to the people. He says again in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Yeshua that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. So how should they continue to walk? As they did before, or do they walk in newness of life? They used to be strangers from the covenants, but now they're what? Partakers. They used to be strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, and now they are grafted in. Verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Yeshua. What commandments did Paul, Timothy, and Silas give to the Thessalonians? To walk like Yeshua. To walk, like Yeshua. To walk in faith and love. To walk in truth, back in chapter 2, verse 13. At the end of verse 13 of chapter 3, in holiness, being blameless. Those are the kind of commandments that Paul, Timothy, and Silas gave to them. Verse 3, 4, because this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a big word. How does one sanctify oneself? Through 
repentance. Then why doesn't the New Testament ever talk about repentance? It does 60 or more times, doesn't it? So this is the will of God, your sanctification. Stop walking in sin. Walk in righteousness. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. Why would he say this to the Thessalonians? What was Thessalonica like? Pagan idolatry. Pagan idolatry and a sexual cesspool. And God says, get out of the pool. Remember Romans 6.19. Let's turn back there again because I want you to put it in your notes right here. Romans 6.19. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he said you still live in that cesspool. That was your life, sexual immorality. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness, which means stop. Committing all those sexual sins. Do you realize there's a whole chapter in Leviticus on sexual immorality, what it is, what it means? Good, then we don't have to go there and read it. As we're talking, it just dawned on me, every, every book that Paul wrote to Gentile believers assumes that they are going to attend synagogue every Sabbath. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So when, when he refers to holiness, when he refers to uncleanness, uh, you know, they've got those few things in Romans that they're supposed to do to get in, but then they're studying, and, and then uh, they're learning the Torah. So they're learning what Paul's talking about, and maybe he's expanding more. But then 1 Peter that you just read, it says people love to twist the sayings of Paul. Right. But isn't that because he was the target? Who wrote all the New Testament just about? Mostly it was Paul. So yep. who, would, who would you go after if you were trying to twist the words of God? You would go, go to Paul. Paul. Yep. So when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, turn there so you know I'm not quoting it out of context. Imitate me just as I also imitate Messiah. And we just read other quotes like that from the New Testament, didn't we? Imitate me. Do as I do. Because I do as Messiah did. What did Messiah do regarding the Sabbath? Prove it. Go to Luke chapter 4. Yeah, but it's in black and white in Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. Those that say that that commandment's not in the New Testament, you don't need to make a commandment when everybody is observing it. Yeah. And when Messiah said, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and Paul said, every scripture is good for doctrine. Mm -hmm. So verse 16 of Luke 4. So he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. If you're going to imitate Messiah, what was his custom? Synagogue. 
Went to the synagogue which day? On Sunday? Nope. On the Sabbath day. Well, that's Messiah. What did Paul do? Let's go to Acts chapter 17. If you're going to imitate Paul because he imitated Messiah, does he imitate Messiah in this? Acts chapter 17, verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Is it only the Jewish people in the synagogue that he's talking to? No. Go to Acts chapter 13. Verse 42. Acts chapter 13, verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached in the next Sabbath. Now in the congregation, it's actually synagogue, it's the very same word, synagogue, as in verse 42. Now, when the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes, which, by the way, are not born Jews, they're Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So when is Paul teaching the Gentiles? On the Sabbath. So Messiah, his custom was to keep the Sabbath. Paul's custom was to keep the Sabbath. And he's teaching the Gentiles who come to believe to keep the Sabbath. So your point is well made. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 6. And somebody will say, we were just there. I know, we're going back. We looked at verse 19, but let's look at verse 22. Somebody will say, we've looked at that one already. Well, I'm glad you remember. Now write it down in your notes again. But now, having been set free from sin, what is sin? 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness, anomia, that which is contrary to the law of God. Having become servants of God. Remember, in Isaiah 66, there's only two categories. There's God's servants and his enemies. Which do you want to be? You have your fruit to holiness, and the end or goal is everlasting life. Aren't you glad that word in Greek is telos, not teleo? That your holiness doesn't end eternal life? No, your holiness leads you to the goal of eternal life. Ah, now put that together with John 17, 3. Holiness leads you not just to everlasting life, but John 17, 3 says everlasting life is to know God and the Messiah whom he sent. So as you practice holiness, you draw closer and closer to God according to the scriptures. Have you ever felt God is distant? And you don't know how to draw close. Repentance is the key to drawing close to God. Second Thessalonians. I know you can find that because it's right after First Thessalonians. But go to chapter 2. Verse 13. Repentance and sanctification 
are like two peas in a pond. Sanctification is the process of cleaning the sin out of your life, which you do through repentance. So verse 13 says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Salvation through sanctification. Does the Bible ever teach salvation through sin? Any idea why? Because sin separates one from God. Repentance draws one back to God. And Hebrews 12:14, of course. Hebrews 12:14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Would you like to dwell in the Lord's presence one day? Without holiness, that will not happen. Now there are those who say that when we get saved, God no longer sees our sin. He just sees the righteousness of Messiah. And therefore we can sin all we want to. And all God sees is Messiah's righteousness in us. Have you found that in the scripture anywhere? No. Neither have I, but I keep looking. Just in, does, does. Just in doctrinal books. Just in doctrinal books. My Bible says, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And it also says in multiple places that if a righteous man sins, his righteousness will be counted as nothing. Yep. And, it, and conversely, a sinner who repents, then his unrighteousness will be. But, you know... And, Yipper. and Yeshua said to the guy that says, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Yeshua said, no. Seventy times seven, which is like you don't ever stop forgiving when he asks for forgiveness. Yeah, can't you just see the guy sitting there with the notebook? That's once, that's twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think he missed the message. So let's go back to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. In Thessalonica, homosexuality was rampant. Uh, adultery was rampant. It, it, it was a cesspool. God says, stop that stuff. Verse, oh, am I really going to do that? I guess I really am. Ugh. Let me just... From Leviticus chapter 18, have you write down some of the categories that God includes within the phrase sexual immorality? First is incest, which is verses 8 through 16. Leviticus chapter 18. You remember that chapter. It's all about don't do this one or that one or the other one. But verses 8 to 16 come down to incest. Not your mother, not your father, not your sister, not your niece, etc. 
Verse 17 prohibits a woman and her daughter. I wouldn't think God would have to tell us that. But the pagans were terribly immoral. Verse 18, not a woman and her sister. Let's all talk to Jacob when we see him one day. Oh. Just write down verse 19, Nida, N-I-D-D-A-H. N-I-D-D-A-H. A woman in her customary impurity. Don't need to go past that. Verse 20 is adultery. Verse 21 is child sacrifice as part of sexual immorality. Here you would put in abortion. What's abortion for? So that you can be sexually immoral without consequences. Verse 23 is bestiality. And then from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13 is homosexuality. Okay. Now we don't have to go read that chapter. Okay. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. As Dr. Bob said, the books of the New Testament assume that when somebody gets saved, they're going to the synagogue to learn the commandments of God. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 15, if you read it in context. First thing I want you to put in your notes about Acts chapter 15 is the question is not, should a believer obey God's commandments once they get saved? That's not the question. If you think it is, you get all confused. The question's in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The rabbis taught that if you're circumcised, you're saved. If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. Salvation is through circumcision. Is that true? No. Never was. And notice it doesn't say unless you're circumcised according to the law of Moses. They're saying salvation comes through obeying the man-made commandment to circumcise your children. Circumcision in the book of Genesis is a sign, a sign, not the sign, a sign that you're in the Abrahamic covenant. The other sign is circumcision of the heart, which you and I would call salvation. Okay, but in Acts chapter 15, verse 19, it says, after the answer, the answer to the question up here, and that's that salvation is by faith, verse 9. That's the answer to the question. No, salvation is by faith, not by works. Then in verse 19, Therefore I judge, this is James, the half-brother of Messiah, that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. What does an I-N-G ending mean? Process. In the process. They want to be saved. They want to follow God, but they don't know how. Verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. That's number one. If you're serious about following God, you must get rid of the idols. 
from sexual immorality. That's all those things we just talked about. From things strangled that is killed in a way that the blood remains in the body. And from blood. A lot of people look at that and from blood and say, I don't know what that means. Have you ever heard of the American tradition and custom when you kill your first deer, you drink its blood? God would have a fit. So those things, if you're serious about turning to God, these are the first things that you'll clean out of your life. Then, verse 21, 4, because... Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. You can go into the synagogue and learn the rest. But can you go into the synagogue with your ham sandwich like Fran did in what was the TV show? The Nanny? <laughs> did that send chills up your spine when you watched that episode? <laughs> okay. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, 1 Corinthians 5.1, Corinth is also in Greece. You all go, well, duh, we knew that. So the cesspool that the Thessalonians live in is going to be the same cesspool the Corinthians live in. And in verse 1, it says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. These things in Acts 15 said, you got to get rid of these things before you even think about coming in to learn the rest. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That is, even the Gentiles don't do this gross stuff. That a man has his father's wife. That's Leviticus 18.8. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken from among you. In other words... They think what he's doing is okay. And Paul says what? Oh no it's not. He says get him out of the congregation now. So that he can realize that this is not acceptable to God. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul gives them a list of things. If you're doing any of these things. Do not think you're on the road to heaven. Because you're not. Do you not know that the unrighteous, what's another term for unrighteous? The lawless. Or lost, I'll take either one. So you got a question out here. I'll get back to that in a minute. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Why would he say do not be deceived? Let him work. 1 Corinthians 6.9. Verse 6 time. Because they were already false teachers. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, they call them Nicolaitans. They teach a doctrine called antinomianism, that the law has been abolished. When Messiah died, it was all fulfilled. It's all gone. So do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, sex before or outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, sex with somebody else's wife, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So what's Paul trying to say? Can we live in sin and expect to go to heaven? He's saying no. 
And the question out here was Acts chapter 15, verse 21. So let's go back to that. Acts chapter 15, verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him. The question is about the word him. Who is him? The him is Moses. He's saying that in the synagogues, they preach the commandments, statutes, and judgments written down by Moses every Shabbat. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 23. Messiah told us to listen when they do. Matthew, chapter 23, verse 1. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying. What's that word saying mean? It's a quote. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That's the place in the synagogue where they would teach the commandments, statutes, and judgments of the Torah that God gave to Moses to write down for all of us. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe that is from the Torah, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So they tell you to do it, but they don't do it. So he's saying, follow what's written in the Torah, not the actions of the scribes and Pharisees. Hopefully that answered the question. So uh, let me interject again, it's probably off the, off the wall. But in the early, quote, church. Mm-hmm. In the early, quote, church. It was almost just like in our, quote, church today where the teachers and leaders were actually pushing people away from God and His commandments. In the early church, the rabbis were still putting teachings of men as opposed to the teachings of God and were pushing these believers that had come into the, these Gentiles that had come into the synagogues, were pushing them away from doing the commandments because they're still trying to teach them. No, no, no. Follow our commandments. Um, some of that stuff is good for you, but our commandments are what you're supposed to be doing. Yep, you have to separate the true teachers from the false teachers. Go back to Matthew 23. <laughs> Verse 15. So not very many verses later after Messiah said, but don't do like they do. Says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, comma, hypocrites. Calls them hypocrites because they honor him with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him, teaching his doctrine the commandments of men, it says. And don't we run into that throughout yeah. our experience today? Yes, sir. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that is, to convert one Gentile. And when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Why? Because you're teaching him not to follow the commandments of God, but your own man-made rules and regulations. And that's the essence of Matthew 23, 3. When they read from the Torah, do that. When they teach their man-made rules and regulations, don't do that. Go back to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. 
People are people, yes. People are people. And you will find in pulpits across the world today, people who will teach you man-made rules and regulations as doctrine. What does Messiah say in Matthew 15? We often go to Mark 7, but since we're in Matthew, Matthew 15, verse 7, hypocrites. That's what he just called them in Matthew 23. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, so he's saying, here's why I'm calling you a hypocrite. These people, that's the scribes and Pharisees, draw near to me with their mouth. They call him Lord and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what does the Lord say your worship is worth if it's based upon man-made commandments and not the commandments of God? And isn't that why God expects every believer he had it written down for the protection of his word. So every believer now has access to the Torah. Yep. Every believer has access to the New Testament. Yep. And even though there are some mistranslations done on purpose, yep. for the most part, if we follow that instead of dogma, we should be pretty near the truth. But following dogma pretty well confuses us. I've been to all sorts of teachings through the years. If you go into man-made teachings, uh, it's, it gets confusing because they mm -hmm. get technical and they they really take something and blow it out of context and they're, they're proof texting instead of opening the scripture. So if you're following dogma in the various denominations even, uh, ultimately some of it is actually contrary to Scripture. They twist it just like they, just like just Peter, like Peter said. Yeah, and Peter, it's considered. Peter letter, they don't even say it. They just say, "Oh, the Bible says," but they right. don't say where. Yeah, where, or they, yeah. yeah, but the, the the twisting of Paul is so common. Yeah, it is. It is actually considered Scripture. Yep. Yeah. Just this morning, I was listening to preachers on YouTube quoting scriptures that are not in the Bible. <laughs> They've made them up, but they quote them saying it's scripture and people believe it. They're just sucking it in. It is written. Do they give a reference? Do they give a reference? No. No. They simply quote the verse. It is written. A, script, a stitch in time saves Yeah. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. We're up to verse 4. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, talking about his body, in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this is where if we had gone to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, a few minutes ago we would do it again. But that's the verse that says what? Don't continue to walk like the Gentiles. Walk. Paul is saying the same thing here. When you get saved, it's time to change your actions. If your actions don't change, what does that say about your heart? The heart didn't change either. The pressure to keep you from changing comes from within the church. Yeah. And notice which chapter we're in in 1 Thessalonians. It's the chapter that describes the rapture and resurrection. 
So Paul is going to say, now why should you listen to me? What is the goal of holiness? But eternal life. And it's coming. So let's go on to verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. That's the warning that there's false teachers who will teach you wrong. Who will try and lead you astray. Why? They, they want you to do what they're doing, not what God says. I watched a YouTube video this morning, at least part of it, that was just fascinating. It was showing the great mansions of so many of these preachers who preach the prosperity gospel. This $15 million mansion, this 54,000 square foot mansion, going from one to another and having them get up there and say, well, if, if I need another $65 million airplane, you're just going to have to give it to me. Because I need it. I want it. It does work for them, doesn't it? Yeah. Do not let one take advantage of you or defraud your brother in this manner. Don't let them teach you to walk away from God. In Matthew 7, which is the broad path, the one leading to heaven or the one leading to the lake of fire? Yeah. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. What does that mean? It means judgment day is coming. If you follow them, Matthew 23 said what? They're punished and you're not? No. It said don't let them lead you into everlasting fire. It says as we also forewarned you and testified. Remember, Paul was only with them three weeks and said, I told you that they're going to mislead you. They're going to try and take you places where God doesn't want you to go. I hope none of you have, been, have seen any of the preachers who from the pulpit have called us to encourage the homosexuals because that's the way we show them love. Do you show anybody love by helping them get into the lake of fire? That's not love. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So what kinds of uncleanness are okay with God? None. So how does this verse 7 relate uncleanness and holiness? Are they similar or are they opposites? They're opposites. You are not walking in holiness without which no one will see God if you're walking in uncleanness. Is that consistent with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9? Yes, it is consistent. In your notes, put Romans 6.19. We won't turn to it because we have twice already. But it's a very important verse. Before you got saved, you walked in uncleanness. Now it's time to stop. People will say, Wayne, but it's hard to stop. And... 2 Corinthians chapter 12. With God, all things are possible. Second Corinthians twelve twenty one. 
We'll start in verse 20, so we start at the beginning of the sentence. But the key verse is 21. If you've ever thought that Paul was a gentle, kind, loving soul, you need to go back and read a little more. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, Paul says, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Does that sound like Daddy bringing the switch down the hall? Yeah. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. What does Paul say when I get there and find that you haven't repented of your sexual immorality? I'm going to say, that's okay, at least you tried? Or is there a blistering coming? Yes, ma'am. What is what? Lewdness. Oh, let's say dressing in a manner to expose parts of the body that ought not to be done. Yeah. So the old expression is, my body, I can show it if I want to. That's not in, in accordance with the scripture. Galatians 5. Verse 19. I'm sure you've seen the news articles lately about the, the people who've been in, marching in the gay pride parades fully naked or half naked. That's lewdness. Galatians 5.19, now, it's not now, it's just and, so fix it. The works of the flesh are evident. Pop quiz, are works of the flesh good or bad? Bad, okay, we got that. Which are adultery. The NIV omits that one. Nah, write it back in. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lewdness. Idolatry. Sorcery, which includes drug abuse. Hatred. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Dissensions. Heresies. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, what? Will not, Will not inherit the kingdom of God. So sexual immoralities, uncleanness, etc. Not on the right path. When people say, but Wayne, they're just walking in love. Wrong definition of love. In today's world, modern English, love is an emotion. In biblical Hebrew, it's not. It's how we treat people. It's an action verb. In the Hebrew, is lust the, an action verb? Or is it like we consider love is lust like that? I would have to go back and see if the word lust appears in, in the biblical Hebrew. Because in, in the scripture they tell us to, to avoid lust. Mm -hmm. but, but then they confuse 
I mean, today we certainly confuse love, and, and lust is a strong emotion, but we consider love to be kind of like, okay, the early part of that maybe. Yeah, I think lust is going to be the equivalent of the Old Testament covetousness. Don't covet your neighbor, your neighbor's wife and stuff. Okay, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, what's therefore mean? Let's make an application. What does this mean? Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man. Paul says, if you reject this teaching, you're not rejecting me, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Normally when we go to 1 John chapter 5, it's to read verses 1 through 5. But there's more in 1 John 5 than that. Verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, meaning cannot live a continuous lifestyle of sin. But he who is born of God keeps himself, that is, keeps himself in check, and the wicked one does not touch him. So if we live a lifetime of sin, that's our lifestyle, can we claim that we're saved? Can we claim that we're born of God? No. If you go back to verse 10. He who believes. And that's a present participle. And the son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. Mm -mm -mm. That's commonplace. Verse 12. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Boy, some of these Bible writers, they just get right to the point. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4.9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Let's go to John chapter 13. Love one another. Verse 34. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What is that Greek word for new in verse 34? Let's just take a quick look. Is it neos or kainos? It is kainos, which means what? 
It's not what you and I would call a new covenant. It means, why don't you really think about trying it? It's renewed. It's issued again. Why does the Lord say this? The apostles, the twelve, all except Judas Iscariot, are his cousins. They're all friends. They all get along. They all like each other. But shortly, there are going to be Gentile believers that start coming in. Is it okay for the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers to look down on each other and to hate each other? No. We're not two flocks. We are one flock following one shepherd. So in Ephesians 2, when Paul gets on the Jewish believers for looking down on the Gentile believers as second-class citizens, he's thinking back to these verses. Love one another. Doesn't matter how you were born. Black, white, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, doesn't make any difference to God. Once you get saved, we are all one. One new person. Go to John 15. First, couldn't, couldn't you say that it's new in the sense that Yeshua is saying, as I have loved you, I've shown you the examples, I've walked it with you. That's how I want you to love one another. Moses taught that we should love one another. But Yeshua said, I have lived it before you. He is showing them how to carry out the commandments correctly. It's not that, that we've never seen that before. Right. It's this is how you do it. Right. That's the whole point of what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Is that the rabbis have taught you one way, but it's not right. I came to fulfill it, to teach it properly so that you can understand it and do it. So yeah, you're correct. John 15 verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Messiah love us? He died for us. No greater love is any man than he would lay down his life for his friends, right? And he told, In fact, that's verse 13. And he told the truth at all times. He didn't, he didn't let slide the sinfulness that we have. He addressed it. Right. And he put others' needs above his own, didn't he? Yeah. But he was gentle and kind without condemnation. Unless you were selling things in the temple. (laughs) In which case the whips came out. But yeah, otherwise you're right. In the same chapter, verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. Why does he keep telling us over and over again? Because we're kind of sometimes slow to hear. Romans 12, verse 10. Romans 12, verse 10. This is the heart of the matter. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. So I should care as much or more about your needs as my own. That's what James is talking about in James 2 when he says, if you see a brother who's hungry and say, go be filled, what good did that do him? 
Give them something to eat. That's what it means, giving preference to one another. Put their needs above your own. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. In other words, all of the commandments God gave us is to teach us how to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. If I'm stealing from my neighbor, am I loving my neighbor? No. If I'm cheating with his wife, am I loving my neighbor? No. I think those verses, the 12, 10, and 13, 8, kind of give evidence that Paul really did spend three years in the wilderness with Messiah. Sure he did. Because this is not Paul's nature. Right. This is the nature of Messiah. That right. Is, I mean, that's... That's not our nature to love one another. Right. That's from God. That was not Paul's nature. You're absolutely right. He was putting people in prison and beating them and putting them to death. Yeah. He was very strict in his interpretation. <laughs> yeah. So go to First Peter chapter 1. You are so right. We will start in verse 20. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll start in verse 20. Referring to our Messiah Yeshua, it says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, which means he was going to be crucified, buried, and resurrected before mankind was ever created, but was manifest or revealed in these last times for you, who through him... Believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. With a pure heart. And chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Meaning if you truly love your brother, there's all kinds of sins you would never think of committing against him, right? You just would never think about it. See, there's a chat out here that I go too fast. Sam says, fulfill the law. Can you expand fulfill? Yes. 
Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The exact word here is plerosai. P-L-E-R capital O-S-A-I. Plerosai. The root of it is plerao, P-L-E-R-O, with a capital O at the end. This word fulfill means to correctly interpret and teach the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God so that people will understand that the rabbis have been teaching them wrong, that Messiah came to teach them right. It is the same word used in Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19 Romans 5.19 I didn't say 19, did I? I said 14 Let me go back and look again Did I say something wrong? Romans 15.19 Thank you Can't remember from a moment to the next what it just said. Ah, you gotta listen to the tape. There it is, fifteen nineteen. In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and right about to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Messiah. That's that same word. Did he abolish the gospel of Messiah? No. Did he fulfill it so that nobody else has to do it? No. It means. He corrected our understanding so that we properly understand it. And that's the way that word is being used there, Sam. Last one, 1 John chapter 3, before we go on to the next verse. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's why Messiah says it's a new commandment using the word kainos, not neos. Neos would mean brand new. You've never heard it before. Kainos means, yeah, you've heard it before. Now why don't you try doing it? Now, back to first... Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10. And indeed, you do soar toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. That's the report that Timothy and Silas brought back, is that they have understood the concept of loving the brethren. And all Macedonia, Macedonia is what we would call today Greece, so it's Corinth, it's Thessalonica, it's all those places. For some, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. 
that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. In other words, your life will be a witness to those that are outside the congregation. And that they will want to be like you. To give you opportunities for sharing the gospel. It says, and that you may lack nothing. Does Paul actually want him to keep working at jobs and making money? Yes. Well, I won't go any further than that. Okay, verse 12. And that you walk properly outside toward those who are out. We may walk properly toward those who are outside that you may lack nothing. And now comes the rapture and resurrection in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Does he mean they're taking a nap? No, it means they have died as believers. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Hope in what? The resurrection. So when I have a loved one that dies, if they are not saved, what hope is there for that person? It's too late. But if one has died in faith, a believer in Messiah, saved by faith, then we don't need to cry over them. We will, because it's hard to lose someone, but we'll know we will see them again. That's what he means. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You're going to sorrow, but there's a hope to it, a knowledge that we're going to see this person again. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, do you believe that? Do you really, really believe that? Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Yeshua. What do we read in Zechariah 14, verse 5? The Lord returns with what? All of his saints. When he returns in Revelation 19, we return with him. How do we get to be with them? That's verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain. And so the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Meaning those of our loved ones who have died as believers. We're not going to get to heaven and wonder what happened to them. They're going to rise first and then we are going to join them. But have you heard the doctrine of imminency? That the Apostle Paul believed the rapture resurrection would be in his lifetime? It's because he used the word here, we. That we who are alive, they say, oh, Paul thought it was going to happen in his lifetime. Therefore, it could happen at any moment of any day. Even though the scripture told us there's 2,000 years between the first and second coming of Messiah. They say, ignore that. Paul said we. What does he mean by we? Believers. believers. Not necessarily him, but believers in general. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord by no means precede those who are asleep. Meaning the rapture follows the resurrection, but very closely in time. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout. What do we call that shout? A teruah. And with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The teruah sounds at the feast of 
trumpets, and the dead and Messiah will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, see there's that we again, talking about those of us who believe, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Is the Lord in heaven for the first seven years of the day of the Lord? Yes. Where will we be? With him in heaven. When he returns to the earth in Revelation 19, what happens to us? We return. That's Zechariah 14.5. Therefore comfort one another with these words. There's a really big movement in the church today to say, oh, there is no pre-tribulation rapture. All the believers have to go through the tribulation. So encourage one another with the fact we've got to go through the worst tribulation the world has ever seen. Where three-fourths of the world will die. Nope. Isn't that great? Nope. No, that's not a, nah. That's not comfort. Comfort one another with these words. That before the wrath of God is poured out on the lost and dying world, we will be taken out of it. Messiah says, it's like the days of Noah. Which happened first? Noah and his family went on the ark or the rains came and killed everybody? They were taken on the ark to a place of safety. Then destruction came. They were in the ark for about a week before the rain came. Yep, for seven days before the destruction of the world came. In, in uh, the story of Enoch the same way? Or similar fashion, not Enoch? Oh. Huh? Lot's where we're going next. Uh, okay, I know Lot, but before Noah. Before Noah, Enoch was taken. Yeah, isn't that the same? Yeah, isn't that a similar concept? A similar concept. He was taken, why? Because he walked with God. It says he walked with God, and that walk there is a heat paleo verb, which means he chose to walk with God. While the rest of the world decided to walk away from God, he chose to walk with God. That's the point. Yes. But Messiah also put, points back to Lot. What did the angels tell Lot? We can't do anything until, until you're out of here. So how many people were delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah and lived? Three. So at the time of Noah, how many survived? Eight. At the time of Lot, three. I just heard a preacher on YouTube just yesterday say there's going to be hundreds of millions of people taken out of here in the rapture. We shall see. But, verses 13 through 18 teach the rapture and resurrection. Yes, sir. There's a very good question in the chat if you'd like to answer, please. Okay, let me go see what it is. When you die, are you in the presence of God or are we in a sleep until the rapture and resurrection? The scripture says, for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you die as a believer, the soul goes up to heaven and the body goes in the ground. If you want to see a scripture that describes it in a, in a real live picture, go to Revelation chapter 6. Soul sleep is taught by some denominations, but it's a doctrine. It's not based on scripture, really. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So their souls are in heaven under the altar of God waiting for the resurrection of their bodies. They were not saved when the rapture and resurrection happened in chapter 4. They got saved during the tribulation period, were killed as martyrs. Their souls are in heaven. The bodies are in the grave waiting for their resurrection in Revelation chapter 20. Wayne, you overlapped with the note that I was writing. Okay. And I pointed out that uh, in Luke's account of Jairus' daughter being raised, it says her spirit returned. So the body sleeps, but the spirit Right. Goes to be with the Lord. Right. Thank you, Edmund. I appreciate that. Very good. All right, back to the scripture and the question of First Thessalonians chapter four teaches the rapture and resurrection. Is that the first place in the Bible where you find it? Answer is negatory. Go back to Isaiah chapter twenty six. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26 meant so much more than the people of Isaiah's day understood. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'll tell you a mystery. But we'll get to that when we get to 1 Corinthians, which may not be today. But Isaiah 26, verse 19 your dead shall live. How can dead people live again? That's resurrection. Together with my dead body. Who's the my? That's Isaiah. They shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. Awake means come back to life. If you're asleep in Messiah in the grave, come back to life. And sing, Revelation 9 Revelation 5, verse 9, tells us this song. Keep a finger here. Go to Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song. These are the raptured and resurrected saints of chapter 4. Saying, you, Messiah, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Yeshua, were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. So back to Isaiah 26. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead. Does that include... Cremation, the answer is yeah, but I don't recommend it. They become, they become dust? <laughs> Not exactly. They become bone fragments. Why don't you recommend it? Because that was the pagan practice. And in the Bible, it's reserved for people who have so offended God that they're not to be remembered. I thought it was also for instances in which they simply didn't have time to bury the dead. So they pile them up they burned the flesh off, but then they took the bones back and buried the bones. Oh. Yeah. Doesn't 
I've got a whole teaching out there. It never says thou shall not cremate. Oh, okay. It says things like cremation is for those that no one wants to remember. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Okay. But in this, in this scripture you just used um, in Isaiah, that would be a scripture that would give the soul sleep people some uh, evidence for their position because... They're saying you will awake, therefore you must have been asleep. The body is but asleep. You're talking is that it's yeah. not about the body is going to awake, but the spirit is already very alert because when right. you're united with Messiah in the spirit, that's being more alive than you've ever been alive. Yep. You just don't have a body. I agree. So we're up to verse 20 of Isaiah 26. It says, Come, my people. The Jewish people understood Isaiah 26 to be about resurrection. They didn't understand the rapture because they overlooked the fact it says, Come, my people. Are all God's people going to be dead? No, but he says, All my people come, enter your chambers. That word chamber refers to the bridal chamber. There's so much in the scripture about Messiah being the bridegroom and the believers being the bride. That's what it is. Is come, my people, enter your chambers. Those chambers, Messiah says in John chapter 14 that we'll get to next week. He has built for us. He's been building since his resurrection and ascension back up to heaven. He's been building the bridal chambers. He says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Just like Noah and the family entered the ark and God shut the door. Shutting the door was for protection. To keep the judgment of God outside. Shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment. Until the indignation is passed. That word indignation in Hebrew is za'am. Z-A apostrophe A-M. And that is the tribulation period. That's the wrath of God being poured out on the world. When God pours out his wrath, where are his people? In the bridal chambers, which he has been building in heaven since his ascension. And then once the indignation is passed, that's verse 21. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. Where is his place? In heaven, within the bridal chamber, right? With the bride. That's what the bridal chamber is, where the bridegroom and bride go from the time of the wedding until they're presented to the world. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That word iniquity is the same as the New Testament word lawlessness. Ongoing, unrepentant sin. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So in Isaiah, we read about the resurrection, but when it says, come my people, it doesn't say, come my dead people. Why, when Messiah called Lazarus out of the grave, did he say, Lazarus, come forth, and not, hey, everybody, come forth? Because everybody would have come forth. So when some of the people have died, they'll be resurrected. Those that remain alive will be caught up, and our bodies will be changed. Speaking of those bridal chambers, let's go to John 14. We still have another two minutes today, so we can get to it today. John 14 is the only place Messiah mentions the rapture. He doesn't mention it in verse 24. I'm sorry, chapter 24. 
First John, I'm sorry, John chapter 14. Slow down, Wayne. John 14. I shouldn't look at the clock. Verses 1 through 3. Maybe even 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Does your Bible then have an asterisk? The asterisk is to say, well, they're not really mansions. That's the bridal chambers of Isaiah 26. So they're already there. He's not building them. What's that? So they are already there. He's not building them. He is still building. No, he's preparing. Maybe he's decorating them. <laughs> okay. Yep. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, maybe it's decoration. We'll find out. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the rapture and resurrection. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And the way, of course, that's verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So is Messiah preparing a place for you? In his father's house. If so, he will come get you. He doesn't say if you haven't died first. He says, I'm going to come get you. Alive, dead, I'm going to come get you. That's the rapture and the resurrection. And next week when we come back, we'll pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and find that there are many other scriptures that teach the rapture and the resurrection also. There's 1 Corinthians 15, there's Revelation 4, 2 Corinthians 5, Revelation 3, and I keep, keep going and going, but my time's up, so I'll quit. And let's go to the Lord in prayer.